Hi folks, Mikey here. Now while Paul's in England, we're going to look back at some of our favourite episodes from the first two seasons. And today, it's about the treasure fleet and Paul's fascinating concept of Big and Little China. I hope you enjoy it and we'll be back with some fresh episodes before Christmas. Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. You actually made it. It's also about the cock ups. <laughs> yeah. Those howlers, the moments of madness, and they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, everyone. And today we're going to be looking at the 15th century Chinese Ming Dynasty, mate. That's right, Mikey. And a particular hero of mine, Admiral Zhang Hei. Um, oh, who, yeah. Who is in charge of the, the famous treasure fleets. So, yeah, we're talking about the age of exploration here when empires were about to boom, you know, big riches, big trade, but we're also. We're also looking at a bit of a <laughs> bit of a howler. Oh yeah, because we're looking at the scuttling oh, yeah. of this treasure fleet and just how China shuts the door and goes wholly isolationist on everybody, just at the time when everyone else are throwing their arms wide open. Mate, if we are talking howlers in Chinese history, <laughs> yeah, the bar was set pretty low from pretty early <laughs> sure, times. Yeah. Okay, my favourite is King Jia of the Shia Dynasty. Right now, he and his lover Mo Zhi. Now, I'm talking 1728 to 1627 BCE. Oh, right, so, okay, the dark mists yep. of time. But anyway, it's my favourite story. Okay. He and his favourite concubine decided, wouldn't it be fun to have a lake filled with alcohol? Right. Yeah, so, so she had a, a whole lake. A whole a small lake, mate, but still a bloody lake. Right. And it wasn't just wine, it was alcohol. The right. hard stuff. Okay, the heavy liquor. So they had the lake built and they used to float around it on their orgy boats because the old oh, On the boat, so it was a real lake. It wasn't just a puddle. Oh, yeah, mate. And, you know, and quite frankly, you know, the, the king and his concubine, they loved an orgy. Right. But they got bored with that, so they thought, wouldn't it be fun just for laughs? Yeah. To get 3,000 citizens to drink the lake dry. No way. And they tried and they died. Ooh. Uh, look, this, wow. this, this King Jia, he was drunk most of the 3, time. 3,000. Wow. Yeah, no, oh, yeah, drunk Give most of the time. Give yeah. a take. Incredibly decadent. And when I talk about drunk, you know, not just the lake stuff, his favourite game in court mm-hmm. was to get his, like his top level advisors, yeah. his high counsellors, yeah. he'd get them drunk, he'd get drunk, and then he'd ride them horsey style around the court. <laughs> giddy up, giddy up. And if you didn't volunteer for a piggyback, to give the king a, a piggyback, yeah. he'd have you taken out the back and killed. And he was particularly creative when it came to execution. All right, but today we're looking at the 15th century, aren't we, Mackie? We're yes. looking at the Ming dynasty. Um, and not just vases, not just vases. <laughs> not right? just the nice little blue and white vases. That's all the very big blue and white vases, aren't they? But it's... Uh, what we're talking about, the reason why we've chosen it is because the 15th century, obviously, everywhere else is booming and the age of exploration is going on. We're about to have Europe circumnavigating the world. But what's very interesting to me is that almost a whole hundred years, a whole century earlier, the Chinese are almost there. Now, they've, they've got these treasure fleets and these famous seven voyages which start in 1405. So as you can see, almost a hundred years before Columbus. And the ships that they're using and the fleet that they've got, Mike, is incredible. 
They had yeah. 3,500 ships in what? their fleets, yeah? 3,500. Guess how many the US Navy's got at the moment? Oh, I'd say, what, 1,500, 1,200? 430 at the moment, Whoa. right? So we're talking about 10 times more than the modern US Navy, right? Yeah. 3,500 ships, and they've got, in Nanjing, they've yeah. got the largest port, the largest dry dock in the world, and then this guy, Admiral Zheng He, who I was talking about before, he's actually a Muslim from Kunming in Yunnan province. He's part of the king's court, he's brought in, and under the first king or emperor of the Ming Dynasty, Hongwu, in 1368 onwards. And then the second emperor is Yonglei. And these two guys together, they realise that the fleet is the way forward. They build up the fleet. I'm just going to jump in here. When you say build it up, mm. you're talking about these ships. These weren't little dinky ships either. No, no, they certainly weren't dinky ships. In terms of size, Mikey, you're talking, well, to give you an example, their big ones were 120 metres long. Now, Columbus's Santa Maria was 19 metres long, right? So, yeah, we're talking massive, massive ships. So, like, seven, eight times the size of the Santa Maria. And massive, massive ships, massive, massive fleet. And then the guy in charge of this fleet is Admiral Zheng He. Right. right? Now, so the Ming Dynasty is up and running. It started in 1368 with Emperor Hongwu. They've kicked out the Mongols. His son, the, the great Emperor Yonglei, is... Doing you know, going gangbusters in China. You've got things like the Grand Canal, the Forbidden City is being built oh, right. in Beijing. So, so, so you're talking about yep. t- two of the major engineering works on Earth at any time. That's right. Happen- and then Yonglei comes in about 1402. And these voyages, they start in 1405, right? Right. And they, the seven voyages, and they're sent to the four corners of the globe. So I said about the, the fleet, you've got Nanjing is the largest docks in the world. Right. The fleet's the largest fleet in the world. The Chinese population at the time, Mikey, we're talking 155 million. Well, hang on, so, so how, how big is England well, at yeah, the same time? Give you an idea. England at this time, 2 million. Spain and its all its empire, 8, 9 million. Wow. Yes, yes it's, it's completely enormous in comparison. And these big ships, really, they were incredibly impressive 120 meters long we're talking the main ones seven decks nine masts 12 sails staterooms <laughs> downstairs balconies everything so i'm assuming you got a boat that big or a ship that mm. big you're gonna need quite a few crew oh yeah the crew 1500 on one ship now i'll be honest they weren't setting out to conquer the world they weren't setting out to colonize the world they are more interested in the trade and yep. maybe some tributes maybe a bit of military yeah because they do they clean up all the indian ocean of, of all the pirates and the south china sea because that was that been a big problem they clean all that up but yeah the idea is that zhang hei he appoints four key admirals um, or sub-admirals underneath him and they go to the four winds across the globe. So he's got an admiral for each wind. <laughs> exactly, yeah, north, south, east, west. Well, that's it. So you've got, yeah, you got Yang Ching, he goes to India and Ceylon, Madagascar, he smashes the pirates. Uh, you've got Hong Bao, he goes to Africa and some say, I'm not sure, but some say maybe even Western Australia. Well, the boat that big, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he made it. <laughs> you got Zuman, he goes to the Americas, um, obviously the West Coast, Coast of the Americas, but we mentioned that in an earlier episode, how they'd come in 
probably somewhere around Peru or Colombia on, on that side. Right. And then you've got Zhu Wen who goes up in Japan and the Pacific Ocean. And in terms of what they bring back, they bring back the spices, obviously, in the sandalwood, but there's ebony, coral. They talk about kingfishers' feathers, tortoise shells, rhinoceros horns, ambergris. And then you've also got these live animals they bring back, like a sort of zoo of ostriches and elephants and giraffes. Well, okay, they may have seen an elephant before in China, <laughs> yeah. but they would never have seen an ostrich or a giraffe, which means they made it as far as Africa. Well, that's it, that's it. But then suddenly, yeah. and this is where, when we talk about howlers, unfortunately, suddenly in 1433, right. all the voyages stop. Yeah, so you've got seven voyages from 1405 to 1433. Suddenly it all stops. A new emperor... Uh, Zuki Shen uh, comes in 1435 and they suddenly they turn inwards they close off from the rest of the world really? by, by 1525 so within 100 years yeah. the whole of the treasure fleet's been destroyed or burnt or left to rot in the docks all the records all Zheng He's admiral's records have been burnt and destroyed to make sure no one can repeat his his exploits so just as the west is about to launch into its first age of world globalization, China, Ming Dynasty China, shuts itself off from the rest of the world. Why? Okay, everyone, we're talking about the Ming Dynasty. They've got their massive treasure fleets. They're about to not conquer the world, but you know, explore the world, trade with the world, mm. expand outwards. But then suddenly they seal the borders, close down the Silk Roads, the spice routes. Why? That's the big question, mate, and that's the, why is this howler happening? Why on earth would they do it when just when anyone else is about to take off? Why on earth would they turn around and slam the door shut? And I think it's got connected to this idea about... It's a concept called Big China, Little China, Mike. And if you, if you go to China and spend any time talking to historians over there or, or politicians over there, it, this subject comes up pretty quickly because the Han Chinese, who are the main ethnic Chinese component, they have this great belief that the history of China, as the oldest continuous nation, which it is, it goes through cycles and it goes through this Big China Little China. Oh, but always going back to, is this where the concept of the Middle Kingdom comes in? Right, exactly. So that's the, ha- the Han Chinese heartline. The Middle Kingdom then becomes the Three Kingdoms you know, in, the, in the myths and legends right. period. But they believe that from then on, you know, for example, you've got the Han Dynasty in 200 BC to 200 AD. They'll push an expansion period and they'll go through the Gansu Corridor. They'll go up to the Tibetan Plateau. They'll go past the Gobi Desert. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and then you know, similarly in the 7th, 9th um, century, you've got the Tang Dynasty, yeah, and they expand again, and they go into the western regions, what's now modern-day Xinjiang. But in between the highs, you've also got the lows, yeah, and so you've got things like the Xianbei nomads coming through and establishing the Northern Wei uh, kingdoms in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, which, which shrinks the the, the hand yeah, Chinese, which back. pushes the Chinese back and right. takes over half the Chinese land. Right. You've then got the Kitans who come down; they establish the Lao Dynasty. They take over virtually all of China in tenth, eleventh, twelfth century. Later on, of course, you've got the Manchus coming, Manchu from Manchuria, to establish the. Qing dynasty in 1912 and the big one the one we talked about with Marco Polo was when the Mongols came down and Kublai Khan 1279 and he starts the Yuan dynasty yeah but isn't the standard idea that that they become absorbed into the Chinese culture well that's it now certainly a lot of people in China would like us to believe that every time these northern invaders came down they were just absorbed into the, the yeah. more sophisticated Chinese civilizations, like Chinese culture, until they were expelled again. But 
I've got to be honest, Mikey, I don't think that's true. Oh. Because you look at, if, let's take the Mongols, for example, Kublai Khan. This is not China absorbing the Mongols. This is the Mon- Mongol Empire conquering, right. very clearly, the Chinese, pushing them out. Yeah, the Song Dynasty tried to fight them. The Mongols take over northern China. The Song move to the south. Then the, the Mongols attack again and destroy the Song Dynasty in the south and take over the whole of China. Yeah, and I, I think as much as the modern-day Chinese historians would like us to think of it all coming from China, for example, yeah, the Silk Road comes from China and goes west. Really, you've got to remember, a lot of the time, it was about these Central Asian nomad societies that they were coming down and they were the dominant force. I just want to put it in here, and we can take this around. So just to make it clear in my head, right? Yeah. When you're talking about the, the, the Central Asian mm. groups, so the idea is that the Silk Road wasn't something that flowed east to west, it sort of flowed west, east, west, west, with them in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Them in the middle. They're like a spider's web, and they're pushing out north, south, east, and west. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, and bringing everyone together from Rome to China to India. See, that's not how we were taught it at school, Paul. Well, that's it. And yeah, and, and it's certainly not how the Chinese like to teach it at the moment. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come to that later on. But the key for me is yeah, the, the Ming Dynasty, it gets a bit of a bad rap, really, because it, it's not completely isolationists. They, you know, they're probably best remembered for building the Great Wall and all the Great Wall, the bits of the Great Wall you see these days, you know, all the nice bits in yeah. the tourist photos. Yeah, they all come from the Ming Dynasty because basically they had to go around and rebuild all the old bits of wall. Because there have been bits of wall standing there for centuries. That's right. But it was the Ming that actually turned it into the Great Wall of China. You know, the thing the astronauts see from space, all that sort of stuff. Exactly, right? So the Ming Dynasty, what they do, the old, and yeah, if you go to China, even if you go to China today actually, mate, if you go out, out west to places like Dung Wang and to the Jade Gate, you'll see all these beautiful old small mud adobe rammed earth walls, which are, yeah, which were useful defences, but there were lots of little walls um, right. with gaps in between that were against specific enemies. Whereas with the Ming, they suddenly they get it into a beautifully stone-faced wall with not just a wall, but on and not just with you know, with towers and turrets, but on the top is all, they have this stone road. Oh, you which, can get horses down there. Which you got yeah, all your horses. They can charge down with telegrams for the communication system. Right, and you can even, of course, you can also have soldiers. They can use it as a conduit, as a route to get their their legions and their soldiers anywhere they need in the empire very very quickly. Yeah, so the Ming have done really really well yeah, you can't knock them for that and yeah with the Grand Canal that kind of thing and the, the, definitely a multicultural court they've got Muslims Jewish people Nestorian Christians you know they're not afraid of progress right. you know, they're, they're, they're looking to expand it's certainly the first two um, with Yongle and his father Hong Wu yeah but the problem is there's also this internal power struggle going on alright and um, because you've got a new force coming into trying to dominate the court in Beijing, and this is the new eunuch elite. Ah, right. right. Um, See, and- not, not a phrase you hear often these days. <laughs> yeah, the old eunuch elite. The eunuch elite, yeah. yeah so they... Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a Toyota no one wants to drive. The new Toyota eunuch elite. <laughs> okay, right. So the, yeah. they're trying to push for power, and they're manipulating for power. And when Yongle dies, there's a couple of uh, short-lived emperors, and then you've got Zhu Qishen, or Zheng Tong Emperor, as he's known, um, and he gets captured by the Mongols in 1449 in the Timu crisis. And he's forced to abdicate. And these elite, these eunuchs, they get his younger brother, Jing Tai, onto the throne because they know that they can make him do their bidding. So people like the old 
elite, the old Confucian scholars, the old merchant classes, people like Zhang He yeah. are pushed out, which actually is quite ironic because Zhang He himself was a eunuch. But these new brand, this new breed of uh, eunuch elite, they're pushing out the old guard and they see the treasure fleets as the epitome of the old school. Oh, right. Right? Right, I, I got you now, yeah. So they say, no, we're going to stop doing all that treasure fleet. And look, there, there could have been a few other ideas as well, there were a few other reasons. You know, for example, when you're fighting the Mongols, the Navy is probably not the most relevant And I, I'm assuming to building and, and maintaining and, and yeah. keeping these ships at sea would have cost a fortune. Yeah, there is a school of thought that says that yeah, the treasure fleet costs so much money to make that there's there actually more than the treasure they brought back. I don't think that's true. I think the treasure fleets were successful, but they certainly were the symbol and they were the bastion of power for the old school. So these new eunuchs wanted to crush that um, and put their own mark on things. Mate, you keep saying eunuchs, right? Yeah. Okay, you know my ears are pricking up. Oops, there we go. Because, uh, you know, as you would know, that for centuries there have been a tradition of eunuchs you know, in powerful positions in, in Chinese society. That's right. I mean, in fact, there's the Ten Eunuchs Rebellion. The, the Ten Eunuchs Rebellion, yes. And you know the weird thing about the Ten Eunuchs Rebellion? <laughs> go on. It wasn't ten, it was twelve. <laughs> 12 I know, for some reason. Yeah. They, but actually, you got me thinking, it's not just in China no. that there are powerful eunuchs. That's true. And in various other cultures, these eunuchs are not just eunuchs. Mm. They're tickling eunuchs. Tickling eunuchs? Yeah. Okay. If I was to mention Queen Hatshepsut of Egypt, 1748 BC onwards. Has got a royal tickler? She, yes, she, she had a eunuch tickler, mate. All right. There was a eunuch who would get her in the mood by rubbing oil on her feet <laughs> and then tickle the, the soles of her feet with a, with a peacock feather. Ooh. And the Russian court, the Romanov court, must have heard of this because they were dead keen for the eunuch tickler. In fact, Anna, so this is on just on the queens. Just, yes, yes, it was it was it was, it was basically to get the queen in the mood, or mm. anyone in the royal court of the Russian court in the mood. Right. Um, Anna Leopoldovna, she was regent in 1741. Her, right. her son was um, one of the Ivans, not the right. bad one, but another Ivan. She was so enthusiastic; she had six eunuchs. All, all, highly, yeah. all, all at the same time. No, no, no they, they used to work in shifts of two. Oh, okay. Um, they're all highly and trained. And tickler until she was. No, mate, not just tickler. You couldn't just turn up with, you know, with a bunch of feathers. Well, you had to be trained in the singing of bawdy songs, mm. telling of erotic tales, mm. and of course, tickling. <laughs> and it was a very. And but getting back to you know, what you're talking about in China, yeah. this wasn't a gig that you know you just ended up with. You wanted this gig, right? Th- powerful were, gig, they were, they powerful were well paid in court. And, and quite and quite powerful people in court. So I'm just saying, you know. I know yeah. China's got a long tradition with eunuchs, yeah. but they pop up where you least expect them. Well, the links between China and Russia, um, I'm glad you pointed them out, Mikey, because I might just come to that. <laughs> Okay, folks, we're talking 500 years ago in mm. China. This is where China has turned its back on the world. Mm. At the same time, the rest of the world is actually starting to explore and go outward. That's right, Mikey. China snatches defeat from the jaws of victory just when it was ripe to launch and, as you say, take over the world potentially. Yeah, But suddenly they're burning all these ships. They're cancelling all their voyages. Right. Um, and, yeah, as you said, the, the question is why. So we, we've talked about maybe, you know, the Navy's not... Hang on, this. hang on, hang on. I feel a map coming on. <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay. You, you better get a map out, well, aren't you? I am about to get a map out, but I was, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, we talked about, yeah, Navy's obviously not being too useful to Mongols, but if you look at a map of China... Here just, we go. Just, just for example, yeah, yeah. You, you'll, you'll see there's more to it than that. Because if you look at, looking at, look at this map of China here, Mikey, okay, yeah. right? So... 
the Han Chinese will always tell you that China is one nation with one territory. Um, you know, it's a, it's a nation state, not an empire. But yeah. if you look at this map here, so you've got the Han Chinese, what we what we call the Middle Kingdom in the beginning, you know, between the Yangtze River and, and the, the Yellow River, River right? right? Okay, that's their heartland. Now, but that's really, even at its peak, that's really only a quarter of what is modern day China, right. modern day Chinese territory. Over here, um, as we all know, is Tibet. Now, the difference is... You're treading carefully now, aren't you? I am treading slightly carefully, but the difference is, yeah, we're talking ethnicity, we're talking religion, we're talking language. You know? So Tibet and Inner Mongolia, which is this bit up here, right. um, funny enough, very similar to Outer Mongolia, they are Buddhists rather than Confucius. Over here, above Tibet, all that whole northeastern, again, about quarter of the modern-day territory, that's, well, the Chinese call it Xinjiang province, but the locals call it East Turkestan. Yeah, it's a Muslim where the Uyghurs are. Right. right. Then, and another contentious. Exactly. Country. Yeah. Then, as I said, you've got Inner Mongolia, which is the, basically the, the top swathe of China. That's really should have, it should, always was traditionally part of one big Mongolia, Inner and Outer together. You then got in the top... Right-hand corner, of course, you've got Manchuria. Now, sure, they do get absorbed um, by the Han Chinese and they do join together, but the, yeah, traditionally they were a different ethnicity. Um, down the south, of course, you've got things like Yunnan, uh, which is a completely different religion, language, etc. Um, yeah, and this is without mentioning the other really contentious points, like yeah, this, your Hong Kong pro-democracy or, or Taiwan, um, or even the fact that even within the Han Chinese, yeah, you've got a split there as well because, of course, you know, if you look at the Yangtze River, right. uh, I, I couldn't believe when I first went to China, north of the Yangtze River, all you get is noodles. Yeah, yeah I know. Noodles, 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 and bloody good noodles. South of the Yangtze, you got the rice, you know, and what most people would associate with Chinese cooking. South, you've got a lot of them speaking Cantonese or Fujian. Right. North of it, they're, they're speaking Mandarin. So... I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that it's very simply the Chinese nation state. What I'm interested by is if China isn't a nation state, as we know it, if is it some sort of empire or is it some sort of federation, a bit like the USSR? Ah, yeah. I made you think of this when I was talking about Unix. Right, exactly. As I said, I told you there's going to be a little link between Russia and China. Yeah, If it's a federation... Does that mean that there's some pointers there that yeah we that might be happening if we're talking about this big China little China concept? Um, are there some pointers from the USSR which might help us you know work out exactly where China's going? Yeah, you because know, um, everyone always says oh you know China's not the same as USSR. It's not gonna it's a it's a country not an empire. But yeah, you know, if it is actually um, a collection of different ethnicities, different religions, different languages, could it break up in the same way the USSR? Now, I know everyone's going to say to me... I, I, I'm sitting a long bow here, mate, yeah, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. There's no, there's no correlation, Paul. There's no way. China's at the peak. It's not going to fall. What are you talking about? But, you know, don't forget, 30 years um, before the collapse of the USSR. you got Khrushchev you know, doing that we will bury you, history's on our side thing. Uh, first man in space. They've just sent the first man in space right. in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the 60s, it looked like USSR could never fail and might even win. But 30 years later, boom, all gone. Yeah, so what I'm saying is that if... At the moment, China complains about colonialism and says that it's all the old empire's fault, and yeah, things like the Opium Wars, that kind of thing. But what I'm saying, maybe if China itself is a colonial power. Maybe its fate 
is not going to be so different looking forward. You hear now, a few people are starting to talk about the great fall of China. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to go that far. But it would be interesting that if you do have this rise and fall, uh, which is natural in most uh, nations, and certainly there is this cyclical nature in in China, and there is also, of course, there's there's this... um, very big movement across the world at the moment, isn't it? This sort of tribalism. Where about, like, nativism, yeah. Yeah, c- countries are splintering up, yeah. you know, and that can be in Europe, in the Balkans, or it could be you know, in Africa, Sudan, South Sudan, that kind of thing. You know, now we haven't got so many wars and ideologies holding these big countries together. Could it be that they might end up, you know, splitting up in the future? I, I hope I'm not preempting something here. Yeah, go on. Could this be one of the motivations behind the, the way the current Chinese leadership's behaving at the moment? Well, that's it. I think, you know, I think today, 500 years after Zheng He, funnily enough, we, we're getting the big China mm. again. Yeah, I think President Xi with his new Silk Road, Belt and Road Initiative, that kind of thing. I think he's very much in the mould of Admiral Zheng He wanting to go out and conquer the world. Because don't forget, you know, this new Silk Road is not just in Asia, it's all over the globe, isn't it? You've got Africa, African ports. I mean, and, they've got soft diplomacy all over Africa. They're building roads, they're building ports. And trying to get as many natural resources, you know, coming their way as they can. Whereas, of course, in the Ming Dynasty, that destroys the treasure fleets... I think there's also that other parallel um, with the Great Wall, building the Great Wall and protectionism, yeah. building Great Walls, for example. You know, there's that great quote, isn't there, um, from Deaton? He says, yeah, when society becomes extremely unequal, elites tend to gain enough power to use the government to secure artificial advantages that shield them away from competition. Now, you know, that could be quite as easily written about Ming Dynasty China with a eunuch's elite, but at the same time you could talk about, you know, Trump building his wall and, you know, modern tax avoiders and big business like Zuckerberg and Bezioff, you know, securing artificial advantages for themselves. Are we at a point where it's like 500 years ago? Well, I've not got a crystal ball, Mike. I'm not going to predict the future, but I just do, I think there's some really interesting parallels between the way that China was so outward and then became inward and now is it so outward again, um, but, you know, could go inward. I'm going to put this in layman's terms. So what you're saying is that Chinese history has been a... A cycle of expansion and then retraction of outwards and then inwards. Over thousands of years. And I think the destruction of the treasure fleet, it is a howler, um, but it's also symptomatic of that cycle. Well, there you go, folks. That's the end of the show. Any questions you've got about Zheng He and his treasure fleet? Any good eunuchs you know about? or (laughs) Any any good noodle bars in your area? Drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at and the rest is hist. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Okay, and if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. 